Welcome to this edition of Spiritual Hustle. Today, we're happy to welcome back Todd Engel to the podcast. Todd is an IT professional who's had the privilege of studying with three enlightened masters. So Todd, we wanted to start the conversation around that. Can you tell us a little bit about the three teachers you studied with? Sure. Thank you both, Justin and Anthony, for having me back on the show. It was a lot of fun last time, so it should be fun this time. <laughs> yeah. I'll be honest, my first teacher who I definitely would consider enlightened, and when I say enlightened, they're somebody that can maintain nirvikapa samadhi for long periods of time. And what is that exactly? That is the state of awareness where you're no longer operating with thought. You're operating in reality without any mental modifications whatsoever. It's a state, I mean, I can only speak to it because I've never experienced it in my life. So it's it's just a state, it's, it's like one of the first stages people go through in the alignment stage that I'm aware of. And it's, anyway, you can, you can Wikipedia it. <laughs> so it's, it's basically the first stage in enlightenment. I guess if you want to call it a stage, yeah. But it's, it, I, I wouldn't say anybody... When people, when they go into meditation and they start exuding like a, a gold light and they start, you know, filling the room with a gold light, that's because they're in nervous samadhi. Okay. I think it's useful to use a metaphor to help people understand enlightenment. And, and the metaphor me and Justin were talking about earlier was Plato had a story about uh, individuals in a cave and he used that story metaphor to describe our perception of reality. In his story, there are group of people looking at the cave wall. There's things happening behind them and they're seeing uh, shadows on the wall, shadows that are being reflected from the things behind them, but they can't look behind them. They don't know what's behind them, right? So they love to make stories about reality in reference to those shadows because that's all they know. And if we take that analogy, what we were talking about is like the first stage of enlightenment would be just standing up and turning around, right? <laughs> to see what's behind you. And I think maybe that's kind of like the same thing you're talking about. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, because, you know, thought is what creates our reality. Thought is what creates everything about us as a person or ego, right? right? When you shut the thought down, how are you now perceiving reality? It's not, you're not saying, oh, it's sunny outside. You're just experiencing it being sunny outside. You're not saying, oh, I'm... <laughs> I'm cold and I'm walking and I'm doing this and I'm going to go shop and I'm hungry now. No, you're just aware that it's cold and you are walking because your being is taking you there. You're not planning anything. You're not doing anything. You're not. Remember um, my first teacher, he'd, he'd wrap on his head and say, you guys think there's something going on up there. There's nothing going on. It's just a bunch of straw. <laughs> and, and, and that's kind of how I remember being, being with him and experiencing that, it's so different. Let me back up a little bit and say why I even started seeking the teacher, right? For many years, uh, probably through high school and on, uh, so this would be, you know, 84 through 87, 88, I'd be getting groups of my friends and we'd be talking and we'd just philosophize. Uh, we didn't use the word enlightenment. Enlightenment wasn't a very well-known term back then. It was still an Eastern philosophy term. And back in the 80s, New Age was the big movement. TM meditation was a big thing, but it was very, I say, subdued in that you didn't speak about alternate uh, religions or philosophies or enlightenment or anything like that. It was not something people were even cared about. What people, and often it was looked down upon. 
And seeking a teacher was not something that was very popular or anything anybody wanted to do. And there was a lot of blowback from the Jim Jones cult thing that happened. And then you had the people that committed suicide with that big, you know, comet came over. Like all these things put fear in people's minds over the idea of a teacher or a guru. So when I first started studying, it was not a friendly atmosphere at all. There were people that literally were kidnapped and tried to, quote, unbrainwash them from the guru. People's houses were broken into. My car was broken into. They would steal like tapes and things that were associated to the teachings. They would do anything they could to kind of undermine it. They would put out uh, kill pieces in the paper on your teacher. They would. NBC did a thing on Nightline on Rama, and uh, it sounded like they were going to do this amazing thing. They were going to show how he does, you know, uh, artificial intelligence. He was in artificial intelligence in the early '90s before it became a big thing. It owned several of his own companies. He, he was a metaphysical teacher, right? Had all these amazing qualities. So he was black belt in five different disciplines. Did they talk about any of that stuff? They did, but they put it in a very negative light. And it was it was kind of very disheartening to see how people did not want to look at it in a very good light. So seeking a teacher was not something uh, mainstream. It was just something I knew I needed to do because myself and my friends, we could not get beyond our own egoic periscope of the, of the world. Like you're talking about the shadows on the wall and just looking at the shadows on the wall. That's the ego, right? You just, all you can see is the shadows on the wall. It's hard to go beyond your own egoic identified self that perceives the capital self outside yourself. And it's also inside yourself. The only thing that doesn't see yourself is not separate is the capital self. The, the smaller self sees you separate all the time. And yet that's the place you're working from to try to find out what alignment is. It's completely ass backwards. For me, it was like I had to go seek a teacher in order to get outside myself to see what the larger self was. That was the first time I actually prayed. I wasn't much, I was kind of agnostic at the time. I, I didn't really, um, I was, you know, I had used religion to try to figure out what was going on. Nobody really seemed to have the answers for me. So I was studying American Indian studying different religions, Eastern philosophy, as they called it, you know, the Buddhism, <laughs> Zen. Those are the only avenues we had to really go back into bookstores. And you could see maybe a Shambhala book who put out a new book and then you gobble that up for, you know, that month. But there wasn't a lot of material or a lot of things to work on. So when I, when my brother actually uh, was at Berkeley and he found somebody that was a meditation teacher and we started going to her and I immediately noticed there was something different about this woman. She was young, professional, had her, she was just wired tight. You know, she had her stuff together. She was financially doing well. She drove a really nice car and she seems just happy. And I had not seen somebody that happy in a long time. And then out of the blue, she pulls me over to the side and says, you know, I noticed you squint a lot when we're doing the meditation when I'm talking. She's like, why don't you wear glasses? And I, I was pretty much living, you know, hand to mouth. I said, I don't have money to get glasses. She literally, we walked to her car and she wrote me a blank check, hand me a blank check and said, go get yourself some glasses. Now that was like, that blew me away because for me, that was like, that's how everybody should be with one another in a society. You know, we help each other out where we see we can help. And the fact that somebody was doing that so readily and so willing to trust me, even though she didn't even know me, really opened up my heart to the idea that there's something going on behind 
what she's learning and what she's doing and how she's conducting herself in life. And it was her teacher that ended up being our teacher later on. And his name was Dr. Frederick Lenz, or Rama as we knew him. And we studied with him for about nine years before he left the body. And he was a very controversial teacher, extremely controversial. I mean, <laughs> there was nothing he did that seems uh, normal. You know, it was all, but for most of the people, we had an amazing time. And there were some that did not like it. There were some that had adverse experiences. There were some people that um, really, it, it just didn't agree with them. And that's how it's going to be with anything you do with teachers. I think if you're looking for the short path like I was, when I say short path, I mean, I didn't want to do a lot of long drawn out uh, teachings. I wanted to just jump in the fire and learn as much as I could, as quickly as I could. In order to do that, you really have to give yourself 100% to the teacher. Do everything they say do. So I was doing things that I wasn't even that comfortable with. And when I say that, for instance, one of the first things he had us do was start reading business books one a month and then write a 12-page report on it. Now, I barely had a high school education. I never picked up a book and read it. So now suddenly I got to read business books every month and write a report on it. And it was, it, for me, it was an ordeal. It was hell. <laughs> it took me hours and hours and hours to do these things. Where some of the guys were you know, going to college and had very good studying skills. They would just read it and, you know, a few, few weekends and then bang out a report and that was it. But that year, for me, my personal growth and my the will that it took to get through that ordeal really changed my spiritual path. And that's another thing I can only say is a lot of teachers, they teach things that you don't think is colloquial to your spiritual growth, but it all is. Everything that you do is. If it's pushing you beyond your own personal barriers and your own personal ideas of who you are as a, as a being, it's, you're, you're expanding your spiritual awareness. And from what I've heard of Rama, like he was always pushing the students. Like Always pushing. I mean, here's a gentleman who the, the median line was not, that was not where you settle. That was where you start. You know, it was always from, from there on. I mean, he just, I don't think he ever slept. He, he gave so much energy. When he first started out, he was flying from Chicago to L.A., San Francisco, New York, and I think Boston. He's making this trip. Um, one, and he was doing a, a seminar every weekend at one of those places. So he was just traveling to, you know, the circle. I, can you imagine the amount of work that that takes, planning all that, doing all that? When he, we first started, I think he charged us $25 or $50 to go to an event, which for me at that time was a lot of money. And then he slowly would kind of turn up the volume and we'd pay $100 and then $200. But if you did everything he said, your income was increasing. So it was kind of a, for him, he was using, because he said, you know, look, we're in the United States. Your money is value. You will know your spiritual growth by how much money you make. And that was the teaching of his, right? Now, that rubbed a lot of people wrong. Because they do not see money as a spiritual thing. But money is no less, no more spiritual than anything else. So how you use it is what makes it spiritual. It's just uh, energy, right? Hmm. So you, Currency, yeah. Currency, yeah. It's just an energy. So where a lot of people had a hard time. I mean, he would make us, for instance, dress up in a tux and go to the seminar. And, you know, for us to rent a tux, fly out to L.A., that was a huge expense for all of us. And we didn't, when we did it, though... We held ourselves differently. 
you know, when you're in a tux, you don't, you're not, you don't slouch in your chair. You sit up straight. You, you mind where your silverware is at when you're eating. You, you just conduct yourself in a whole different manner. And he purposely put us through those ranks to become much more comfortable with being affluent, with being around things that were monetary. Because if you, if you want to go from being poor to making a lot of money, you need to understand what it feels like to have money. If you don't know what it feels like to have money, then there's nothing really, you don't know the goal that you're going for other than just if you have more money, right? It's more of an emotional thing that you're making a connection to. So he was allowing us to make that emotional connection to feel comfortable in money. Because for instance, I know a lot of, I have a lot of friends that would never even dress in a suit. They just don't feel comfortable in it. I, I have a, a parent that doesn't feel comfortable in a fancy restaurant. She just feels like she's out of place. So I realized what he was doing at the time was making us all feel comfortable in a, in a very nice place and with a lot of opulence. It helped draw our consciousness in that manner. And in doing so, he took somebody like myself, it took many people like us, that I was making minimum wage to being a professional in six years. And he would say, well, how is that spiritual? <laughs> it was spiritual because we were meditating constantly and we were getting, you know, I'm going to say it was opening up fabric within the universe that would just allow for more chances to happen that would lead towards the ultimate goal of, of not having to worry about money. The purpose he was, the purpose he was trying to why money was important was he was saying, look, if you want to maintain higher states of consciousness, it's a lot easier to do when you're not struggling for rent, you're living in your car or you're living in a neighborhood where you, you know, it's not safe. It's a lot easier to do when you live in a nice, safe neighborhood. You don't have to worry about your bills. You can travel a little bit, have some freedom. It's a lot easier to maintain yourself in the world. And I have to agree. The the other stuff that I do is is financial based and it shows people what stocks to buy and, and how to look at stocks and how to trade stocks. Because if you can pull money out of the stock market really quick, then that gives you opportunity to do all the other stuff. And that's so fundamental, especially in a capitalist country, because you can't even get on the path to understanding anything if you're working 12 hours a day making 750 an hour it just it, you, it cannot happen you have to find a way to make to make money and then you can start building it but the money really is like that's like the survival part of all of this so yeah i totally agree with that yeah yeah i've heard like um that he did like other amazing things like he would organize huge raids right I believe he rented the Guggenheim one time and all the students went to the Guggenheim where they did a rave. Absolutely. Yeah. We, he did the Guggenheim. Uh, he rented a lot of the puck building, a lot of really nice, but uh, studio 54, when they remodeled it, we were actually the first people to go into the building after the remodel. They hadn't even opened up to the public yet. Hmm. And uh, we had, and watching, watching him dance on the studio 54 stage was just awesome. It was, it was cool. And, you know, we didn't um, drink. There were no drugs. There were, you weren't allowed to do any of those things. We just learned how to cultivate feelings and emotions and just be in that high state of awareness. For me, that's what a teacher is paramount for, is if you want to ride a bike, you might get on a tandem bicycle with a teacher and he rides you around and you can feel what the bike feels like and turn in the corners and do all these things. And then the teacher gets off the bike and you have to ride it on, on your own. At least you won't be able to do what he, what you did with the teacher on the bike, but at least you know what it felt like. At least you know how how to conduct yourself. You kind of know what you're shooting towards, right. and that's right. what a good spiritual teacher does. Is he sets up the stage when you're having darshan with him or her, 
you're in this consciousness that is so much higher than anything you can get on your own. And when it's there, when you go and meditate on your own, you know where to pull your feelings. You know where to put yourself in that meditation because you felt it before. And that is the key, I think, thing for having a spiritual teacher. So your, your second teacher, Adi Dodd. Right. Yeah, Rama committed suicide in 98. It was a very controversial way to die than the lion being. Uh, you know, the, people say, well, if he's a lion, why do you commit suicide? But I, I can never even speculate. Yeah, I can never even speculate. I just know that he was extremely sick. His body was breaking down. And, you know, speculatively, it seems very much like he didn't want to go through the years of being in a wheelchair. And it was paralyzing his body and everything else. And sickness absolutely happens with teachers. They, they, took, they take on an enormous amount of karma. So it's, it's people come to me and say, oh, well, if he's a lion, then they shouldn't get sick. They should just be pure all the time. That is absolutely not true. I don't, I don't know where that idea comes from. He was always healthy looking. He never, in front of us, showed much sickness. But I, I had some people that um, worked with him very closely and saw him behind the scenes. And they said that, yeah, there was times he couldn't get out of bed because he was so just, he had a rare blood disease that was just attacking most of his body. So I just want to make it plain clear, like, that's all I know about that. So in 98, when he left the body, then it left a big hole for a lot of people. Suddenly, somebody that we loved and had taken us through an amazing experience for nine years, and some for many, many more, we, we didn't know what to do. And some people found a guy up north in the Pacific. Uh, his name was Adi Da. And he was actually in, in the 60s and 70s. He was known as Bubba Free Jones, very controversial teacher. And Adi Da was all about teaching from the heart. So Rama was about, for me, he was about getting your shit wired tight, understanding the material world so you can handle yourself in the spiritual world. And he, he told us, he's like, I don't have a lot of time. So I need to go fast track on this. And he, he just burned through it. When nine years, I, I went through lifetimes of karma. I mean, where I sit today in life, I can't even believe I'm here because it would normally take me you know, 100 lifetimes to make that jump from where I was in conscious to where I am now. So Adi Da, he was all about finding God through the heart, opening one's heart and the goddess and finding God through the heart. So he was totally different. So we went from down in the navel chakra, warrior, 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 you just, you just get things done to, oh, now I have to feel everything in the heart. And his darshan was so intense that I remember one time, people would tell me that you would just, you would just break down and cry when you saw him. And we were all kind of waiting for his darshan out in the open. And there was a hill in front of us and there's a chair. And I could see him in the distance walking towards us. And he had a cane because he had polio when he was a kid. So one leg was a little bit weaker than the other. So he walked with his cane. As he was coming up over the hill behind, uh, in front of us, his darshan started hitting us wave after wave after wave. And it was kind of a feeling like, you know, when somebody opens a door and it's hot outside and it's like heat wave hits you. It's kind of like that. But imagine it in a feeling of bliss. It's just like, it's just like this feeling of bliss washes over you. And then as he got closer and closer, that feeling of bliss opened doors to the feelings of just being separate from God and the abandonment of that. Most of the people, <laughs> we just broke down and just started bawling, just started crying and crying. And you don't know where it's all coming from, but it's just, it's just this constant, massive motion of 
what it is to be separated from God and how God feels that with you and that heart pain, right? That one darshan opened up my entire being to the idea of everything and everything we do is all about avoiding rejection. That people people come to you in the street, they say something, you might get defensive about it because you're feeling rejected. Where's that constant feeling rejection come from? I think the original place it comes from is from being separated from the uh, larger self, from God itself. That damage that separation creates, that, that emotionality damage that separation creates. And we studied with him for two years. Well, I say we, because my wife and I. We struggled with Adida because he was a renunciate. So we also went from suddenly, you know, opulence to somebody whose students had no money. They were living hand to mouth. It was just poor, poor, poor. And that bothered us a lot because it, it, I started making less money in my career. <laughs> it, it, it was, it definitely had different impacts on our lives. And it was not a place where I didn't want to be renunciate. I didn't want to go out in the woods where he was and live out there. I wanted to be in the world. So we found it very difficult and we stepped away because of that. And that's when we found our third teacher which was at that time he was streaming breezy and he was all about hundred percent spirituality, hundred percent materiality that you, your life should be both 200% engaged, both spiritually engaged more materially. You're talking about Dr. Baskin. That's right. He, he now goes by uh, Dr. Baskin. Yep. And that, that resonated with me. That was a very strong resonation that here's somebody that is taking stuff from, I've learned from my first teacher also things from my second teacher, but really ingraining it into my world life. And I think that's what, if anybody's seeking a teacher, that's what they should look for is a teacher that vibrates with them. Everybody's unique. Everybody has their own unique problems to solve. And my point earlier about being in the 80s and not having a wide breadth of, of outlets to seek these things, now... There are people out there that are awakening to states of consciousness that it's just unbelievable. There's just people all the time I'm hearing about people. I know, uh, Anthony, you, you've, you've brought several to my uh, doorstep, and I'm always impressed with how amazing these people are and how advanced they are in their own spiritual growth and in, in, in the willingness they have to uh, share it with others. So, and I think that's important. I, th- I think that leads us to like kind of like the main topic of conversation we wanted to get at in this podcast. That being that in the current environment, does one need like a, an enlightened master to teach them how to become liberated themselves? I know that Justin has an opinion on this. And I think, Justin, you, you can elaborate on that. But I think your opinion is influenced by the fact that um, what Todd mentioned, a lot of studying with an enlightened teacher, they tell you, things you need to do. And a lot of times you're not comfortable with that. Right. And I think you are, have a little worry inside you that you might suggest things to do where they could take control over you. I think that's where your concern comes from. Well, I think the first concession that I wrote down that was fairly obvious is that we live in a much different time than in 1980s. And um, to not acknowledge that and to say, no, this, the internet was always there. What's wrong with you? Every book ever, ever written by everybody what, you didn't have access to that 20 years ago? Oh my God, the 80s was a long time ago. So, so yeah, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, yeah, my experience going into trusting people was through college. So in college, you purchase friends 
And for the first year of these friends that are that you paid for, you do their laundry and and they and they treat you very poorly. This is what is known as a fraternity. And that's kind of what guru worship sounded like to me. I was like, uh, no, thank you. I'll do my own laundry and or I'll get my mom to do my my laundry for me. <laughs> <laughs> I like what you said, guru worship. None of my gurus, if I if I'm gonna use that term, guru, I don't I don't ever use the term guru. I like teacher. Spiritual teacher. Okay. Um, there seems to be a lot of negative connotation around Guru. Yeah. They never asked me to worship them. Dr. Ply, I know when he comes into a room, a lot of the students will, will put our hands together in respect and bow to him. And a lot, of, and if new people see that, a lot of times I think we're worshiping him. We've never been asked to worship him. Rama was the same way, never asked to worship him. I think any real teacher will never point to themselves. They're always pointing out that there's something bigger than them. They're trying to yoke you to the yoga, you know. I mean, for me, that would be almost a red flag if a teacher was to ask me to worship them. Now, I will say this, my Adi Da, there were moments when we would meditate on his form, on his picture. That's another thing we say people, that's worship. Well, I don't really think his worship is in that form and, and the, the idea of form, there's consciousness in form. So if that person has a, a much elevated consciousness yeah. that you're trying to speak, just by meditating on their form, you're merging with that consciousness. You're not necessarily trying to merge with them per se, but the consciousness that they're in. Yeah, a couple things there. When it comes to meditating on a, on a teacher, that's a red flag to me because it's like, well, you've got Shiva, you have Vishnu, so why the hell would I worship on a messenger? Because they're trying to show you this awesomeness. So that that's one thing. And I've never actually seen a teacher asked to be worshipped, but their level of consciousness and their awareness, I'm very aware and cognizant. I'm not trying to, to take away anything to say that these people don't have this, this uh, ability to, for lack of a better word, manipulate. But they do have powers that, like you said, that can make you just cry almost instantaneously from seeing them. That power can make people, without even asking them to worship, can bring people to worship them. It's funny, when I first started my first teacher, worship was never even, the word was never even used. My second teacher was when we started actually worshiping like the, the uh, lingam, something like that, something outside. And I had a very hard time with it. I struggled a lot with it. So lingam? It represents the phallic uh, symbol for the male. And it's, it's a stone that stands up, up upright. It's a Shiva, they're called Shiva lingams. Yeah. And they would do Abhishekam stone, and Abhishekam is a type of uh, where you pour milk over it and you pray and you, right? All this stuff was very, for me, was difficult. I did not like it, but I tried it because I wanted to understand more about my teacher. And that's, that's kind of the leap of faith. That is One thing you have to know is yourself. Beyond that, you have to know enough to where you say, this doesn't feel right. You might say this doesn't feel right. I'm willing to give it a try for a little while, but if it still doesn't feel right in a month or so, I'm not going to do it anymore, right? You, you have to know, you have to have faith in yourself. You're not going to be just completely overtaken by something. And for me, and Rama always says too, if you're not consistently getting happier while studying with your teacher, what are you doing? <laughs> Leave. <laughs> like, you know, the, the idea of this is to consistently become happier and happier and happier. If you are going into debt for your teacher, that's ridiculous. Don't ever go into debt for your teacher. Things like that, like, there are just, I don't know, stepping stones to keep you safe, so to speak. Like, if you set up your guidelines of what you're willing to do and not willing to do, something like worship, it's not costing you anything. 
you're just you're just putting your energy into it and seeing where it takes your consciousness. It's not there's nothing in the material world that's going to blow up on you. Mm. Go ahead. Make a distinction. I may see if this makes sense to you. I've talked to Justin uh, recently about my meditations lately have gotten a lot better because when I approach the meditations and when I go into the meditations, I do it with a lot of reverence, going to uh, make love with the divine, right? So you go there with, with that anticipation, that excitement and that reverence, right? So I know that when, when you have a teacher, I've had basically one teacher, Dr. Palai, just as yourself, and that's where me and Todd met. When you approach that teacher much like you would any other teacher that was like at the top of his game, whether it was martial arts or anything else, you approach that teacher with a sense of reverence, right? A sense of gratitude for being able to be in their presence. Reverence and gratitude is very different to me than worship, right? I don't know if, if I ever worshiped my, my teacher looking back on it, but I definitely had like an incredible amount of reverence and respect and gratitude for the teachings that they imparted on. Does that distinction make sense to you, Todd? Yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because of both those are, those are humble energies, yeah. right? You're, you're with humility, right? Your teacher's trying to show you something that you, you yourself are incapable of experiencing. And in order to do that, you have to give yourself, some of yourself, to the teacher. <laughs> you just have to. For me, it's always been love, gratitude, respect. I've never, I mean, I've always had a, when I'm studying with a teacher, I have their picture in my house because I, I just love them. I want them in my house. I want their energy in my house because they're showing me something that is beautiful and beloved to my own heart. So if you feel that way, then I think you're on the right track. If you're struggling and your life is turning to shit and you're having trouble paying the bills and they're asking you for a bunch of money, there's something definitely wrong here. <laughs> you know, you want to you always be... It should be a magical carpet ride, one that just puts you on cloud nine almost all, you know, not all the time, because there's a, you're going to go through trials and tribulations. Any good teacher is going to put you through the ringer. Any expansion of oneself is always somewhat of a, like working out. You know, working out, you get endorphins, but you almost wake up in the morning, you're sore and in a lot of pain. So there's, there's always a, a give and take. And, and I think that's one important thing too, teachers, is that, you will need to give something back to the teacher. It's inappropriate. It's an it's a universal imbalance for them to take your karma and for you to just walk away and not give anything back. And that giving back could be in a way of devoting your time. For instance, um, my wife does vipassana, and it's up in the mountains. And there's he's not in the body anymore, but they do videos. And the only way to continue is you have to go volunteer. You have to cook one weekend or you have to, you know, and that's a, that's a way of giving back. There's, there's always something that you need to do to give back. Otherwise it's just one side. You're just taking, 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 and that's, that's inappropriate. I can't imagine any teacher. I've always given something back to me. In fact, the more I give to my teacher, the teacher gives back a hundredfold. It's always amplified. I remember with Rama, it was something as simple as me bringing the sound system to the, to the stage every time that, that he came into San Francisco. And then um, one day he just came by and gave me uh, a great appreciation for, for just doing that. I got a question for you. I wrote this down and then what you just said kind of reminded me of it. And I've been saying this for a while because I'm a selfish person. So what I found out, though, is when you're not selfish, when you're selfless and you, and you give, you seem to always get way more in return. So I started telling people that I'm, I'm selfishly selfless. And I do that in, in, because every time I give more to somebody, I always get way more in return. And 
is that sort of like a something that you see from the from the teachers that that they're every time you give them something they're always returning the the favor in in like a hundredfold kind of gift or kind of way from from our perspective yeah from, yeah yeah absolutely the teachers giving you they're giving you a, the abundance of the universe <laughs> you can't really give that back in any terms that are that are equal so it's you're always getting so much Here, more here's your microphone <laughs> Yeah, they they give you the uniform uh, or yeah. the universe, and you give them a, a, a microphone or yeah, a sound yeah, system. Yeah. <laughs> Fair trade. There you go. And I mean, I look at I look at what some of the great teachers like Gandhi and um, Mother Mira and all these, all these what they've done out, what they've done in the world and their impact in the world. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing what they get back, what they give back, and it's usually with their life. Mm-hmm. They ultimately pay with their life. Almost all teachers die from their students. So that, that leads into my, my next question. And this one, it's not a fun question because uh, of what happened with your first teacher and how you knew him for so long and everything. But it is, this is a, an issue that I, that I wrote down. And it's, what do you do when this guy who you put your entire faith into dies? We're all human. We all die. What happens next? And it sounds like there was a, a pretty turbulent time for most, for most of you. It was, especially since um, it came kind of unexpected. I mean, yeah, we, we could see how Rama was preparing us for it in hindsight. <laughs> but when it happened, you're like, you're like, oh, wow, this is what he well, this is why he was doing that. This is why he was doing all that. Oh, geez. But now he's gone. And I think it was where I was at at the time, too. I had a very material connection to my teacher. You know, I, I had to see him, you know, hear his voice. And that I think body helped me not feel that like. The, my connection now to my current teacher is so not material. It's completely within the art. Like, I feel like I can just talk to him right now, you know, just pull him into the room and say, I got this issue and I give that answer right away. And I think that's just part of one's spiritual growth is you will have a teacher and that teacher may not last a long time. It may be short and, or it may go for a long time. I mean, the followers of Adi Da, we knew them, they, they were into it for 20 years and then, I lived for another 15, so it was like 35, 40 years of their, of their teachings. I don't know how they deal, dealt with it. I mean, that's something on an individual basis, but it is something that, to your point, I don't think you should be afraid of it. I think you should still just give everything you have, your heart and everything to the teacher. And, you know, of course, with the red flags I had mentioned before, and just embrace, embrace the teachings and see where it takes you. If it takes you to a place that you're not comfortable with, then just step away. You know, there's no shame in it. I think people get caught up in loyalty. I've seen that a lot. And that's how the cults start. The cult mindset starts happening with attachment to the teacher in the physical body. Then, then these, I'm doing good, so I'm getting in the best light type thing. And then these little pecking orders start happening where, oh, I, I want to gain favor of the teacher, so I'm going to do this and undermine. All that starts happening. <laughs> A good teacher will be able to just break it down very fast. And the way Dr. Ply did it was he changed his name. <laughs> he changed his name and all these students would just drop away and new ones would come, come into place and it would just shake everything up. And then the people that have been like Anthony and I have been with for years and years, we've seen him go through three or four different names. And then he finally decided the way he got rid of the cult mentality altogether is he got rid of his spiritual name. He's now Dr. Balaskin Ply is his, his street name, which now everybody just says, oh, well, he's not... So a spiritual teacher anymore. He's more a scientific spiritual teacher, I guess. 
So I've never seen this cult uh, consciousness come into the group again since then. It's, it's fascinating. But um, you have but seen it. You, you have seen it? I mean, you have experienced it. Like you, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it happens. It, it's not even something the teacher, I don't think they can help. It's just something that the human ego does to con- try to control the teachings. <laughs> they try to hijack it. You know? mm-hmm. Studying enlightenment is very scary for the ego. It's terrifying for the ego. You're telling the ego at every given moment of the time with the teacher that you don't exist, that you're just a figment of your imagination, that everything you believe in is actually a lie. <laughs> so you're trying to tell your ego that it's not important. Well, that that's a real abrasive thing to tell your ego. So your ego gets pissed off and starts trying to control the guru. And the way you control the guru is you say, oh, he's imperfect or she's imperfect or they do this wrong or they do that wrong. Or they, oh, I can do better than this. And they, and they just start creating these different thought patterns and it just starts bringing the ego into the room. And it's fascinating thing to watch. It really is. I mean, even with myself, you know, I, I've done it. And over the years, I mean, I've been doing this since 90. It's a fascinating thing to watch. And, and I've realized that almost everybody I've seen kind of goes through that, that pattern teacher-wise. I don't know if there's ever a solution to it. Just a good teacher will, will figure a way around of breaking it up. I know, I know the solution. Yeah. You're not going to like it, though. No, no teacher. No teacher. <laughs> but to me, that's it. I mean, if you don't want a teacher and you're not a good teacher, then don't get a teacher. You know? You have, yeah. to, feel, you have to feel compelled to get a teacher. I was driven to it to the point where I was praying for it. I never prayed for it in my life. I never prayed for anything. Yeah, I remember railing on a um, billboard. I'm, I'm in South Carolina, so sometimes you'll see a church billboard. Mm-hmm. You have to go out into the middle of nowhere. It's not like it's in the city or anything, but they're there. And I remember just going off on it, being like, how could they say that Jesus saves and, and all this stuff and go to the church and that you don't need any of that stuff. You just go, you can do it yourself. And then, and my buddy who is pretty religious in a very Christian way. And he, he just looks at me and says, like, sometimes people just need that. And then they'll figure it out later. Some people are at the point where they just need something. And uh, so I, I get that. And, uh, and I was like, oh, I was wrong. <laughs> First time for everything. Huh? <laughs> Inevitably, every teacher has a structure about what they're teaching, and I've learned this: that you, your teacher, will have the same. Like you'll gravitate towards your teacher, and that teacher has also some things they're trying to figure out. There's some sticky bits within themselves that are being reflected here on the planet Earth. They're trying to figure out. Like there's no accident. Well, yeah. Anyway, so it's. You'll find that you, a lot of times you, you, when you find the guru or the teacher there or the guru that's perfect for you is they have very similar issues that you have that you're trying to figure out in life. And they're figuring it out too. The, the idea that they're infallible is ridiculous. They're in a human body. They're uh, experiencing human consciousness when they're not in higher states of meditation. They have to pay the bills just like everybody else. They have to walk across the street and the light turns green, you know, that kind of stuff. So they have to be in human consciousness. They can't just be in la-la land all the time. I see La La Land, you know what I mean? It's just out, out in the... I don't the higher be, chakras. Yeah, yeah. I, don't wanna, I don't want to demean, you know, because that could be new agey or something like that. But yeah. um, I think the idea that, that somehow an enlightened master is perfect in all ways, shape and form, is a ridiculous concept. And, and that's a great point. That's, that's a really good point. And, and going back to uh, what we were talking about in regards to Justin's concern when it comes to a teacher, how do you know you have a good teacher? you're not in a cult and even if you have a good teacher there's a tendency for the humans around him to create a cult right so you have yes. to be aware of that 
regards to how do you know if you found like your teacher, the one that's, I guess that's meant for you to find is, is goes back to your first point. You, you have to have that burning desire for a teacher and it comes from within. It's almost like that burning desire for your first love. Like it, it's, it's at that level of intensity, right? It's a love attraction. So that's the first thing. Next thing is like when you've met your teacher or a teacher, you have to be able to feel like an energetic exchange because a teacher is basically someone that's a higher consciousness, which means they have more energy, right? And when they're given darshan, you'll feel that. And some people will see it, that golden light mm-hmm. around them when they emit that light, right? So that's mm-hmm. that's definitely the first first uh, main guidepost to say, okay, this guy has a higher frequency, and that's what I'm looking for. The next thing is that you were saying, if you're studying with a teacher, the general rule is that you should be getting happier and happier. I mean, you'll be tested along the way, and those might make you uncomfortable, but generally the trend is become happier, right? And the third thing you mentioned, which is critically important, is that you're not getting into debt. <laughs> you know, yeah. If you're getting into debt to be with a teacher, that's a serious red light. In your case, where Rama increased the tuition fees, that's fine because he was also telling you or teaching you at the time how to become more professional, how to get your shit together so you can go into the world and become and attract more money, right? The fourth thing I would like to add and I think it's definitely relevant for you and me. It might not be relevant for most people or all people, but definitely for you and me. Like when you're studying with the teacher, you don't want to renounce your life and move into the cave, right? You want that spiritual side, but you want the materialistic side. So the way Dr. Pillai mentions it, like 100% life on the spiritual side, 100% life on the material side. Like in this day and age, like you have to have both. Like one or the other is not going to get you to where you need to be. Unless you really want to renounce your life. That's a, that's a tough one because um, it depends where you're at and where your teacher's at and everything else, right? Some teachers would rather you go out into the mountain with them and spend six months with them and learn their technique. And you know what I mean? Yep. And in some way you are renouncing life. You're going to a commune and doing that, which might be appropriate for you. I know Rama, he advised us in the beginning to be careful with close friends, families, and relatives, because they hold you in a certain perspective. Right. And, and it's hard to break out of that perception when everybody's enforcing it, right? So by stepping out of those groups and just isolating yourself for a little while and immersing yourself in the teachers, we were able to break those perceptions, then step back into those rooms. And those their perceptions of you were then broken because you didn't follow the same patterns, right? And it, it, it kind of shifted everything. Well, a lot of people took that to the extreme and did disassociate themselves from their family, did break off ties with friends. And I, I didn't agree with any of that. I, I felt very disheartened by that. But again, that was their choice, right? And that's how they interpreted the teachings. So it's really comes down to your relationship with a teacher, not other people's relationship in the teacher, not what they're doing. Don't compare yourself. Don't. It's your relationship with the teacher. You may have a completely different relationship with the teacher than all the other students. It may happen that way. But the important thing is that you keep in tune with yourself and not compare with everybody else. The, the comparisons thing, that's what starts cults. That's what starts the whole cult mentality is the constant comparison and judgment. You should always be comparing yourself to yourself so that you can see the change and how you're growing. Yeah. If you can yeah. start comparing yourself to anything outside of yourself, the comparison is, is irrelevant and invalid. Like it, it won't help you grow. Yeah, one last question. Is there a way that 
gurus or teachers or whatever train you to become a teacher? Like, have you ever thought about becoming a teacher, Todd? No. I should say I thought about it, yes. I even tried it once. It was extremely hard. And what I found out really fast was that I don't have Darshan like the masters do, right? It's like you, you can take them mentally to a place. You can take somebody, you can open up their doors, you can psychically say, okay, this is these are realities, but it's only in the mental constructs. You're not actually changing anything in the the vibrationary and the, like the Akashic records or something like that that are physically changing somebody's life. Not physically, but spiritually changing somebody's life. And then you start to also realize the incredible burden it is to be a teacher. It's like people, every time they start, it's, it's just an, it's a, it's a thing that happens. They, they fall in love with you. Then they want to, they want to, I don't know how to say it. If something happens that doesn't fit in their frame of reference and sense, like um, you do something that just seems unlike yourself, they get really upset. You might do something like, um, for instance, if somebody may have a, a teacher and they think, oh, my God, I love this guy. He's so pure, blah, blah, blah. And then one day they find him drinking a beer. <laughs> and they go, how can he drink a beer? You know, that's that's so, you know, wrong, blah, blah, blah. And they suddenly get disenchanted and, disen you know, suddenly because the teacher did something that was a disillusionment to, to their illusion. And that happens a lot for teachers. Everybody wants to put them high on a pedestal. They don't necessarily want to be on that pedestal because the higher they get on that pedestal, the taller they fall within people's minds. And it, and it becomes a kind of a terrible place to be. Uh, I got an idea. Let me, let me throw this idea by you. I, I've always thought that like, you would make a great teacher. I can, I can have countless examples. One example is I remember we were in Boston one time and this guy came running at us and I thought serious violence was about to ensue, right? <laughs> And, and you talked him off the ledge in such a such a calm way. And next thing you know, you, you and him just walking down the street, shooting the shit, talking about philosophy. I, I remember the stand up. I remember you've done stuff like this before. So you have a way with like calming people down and, and talking to them. And, and you, you tried being a counselor for a while when you were in New York, too. But and that was a lot of work. Right. But for, from listening to you talk, it sounds like one of the main reasons you don't want to do it is because of rejection. And it goes back to that idea that we all expect rejection. So I'm just throwing this out as an idea. If you did go back to teaching, would that be a good way for you to deal with what seems to be your greatest pain inside is that idea of being rejected? Maybe it's a good thought. I'll have to think about that. That's a lot to, that's a lot to think about. Yeah. You can mull that over. <laughs> yeah. I'm all that over. <laughs> I'll meditate on it. Yeah, no, that's that's a good thought. And another problem I have is, and it's something I don't personally do very well, is um, when I'm with somebody, I take on a lot of their emotionality. I have a very empathetic system, but I don't know how to get rid of it. I'm very poor at getting rid of it. Like some people can see something violent or something, or something get really angry, and then they can just kind of laugh it off or burn it off, and it's gone out of their system. Me, oh, I carry it around for days, and it, it's it becomes tough on me. So um, that's one thing I'm trying to work on now is I'm just trying to get better at uh, cycling through uh, the emotionality that's out there in the, in the outside of myself. You know, like for instance, driving in California, I get, you know, you know how I drive. <laughs> I get, people, people get pissed at me. You know, and I, I, when, when I get hit with that anger, it's, it takes me a while to get rid of that. It's just in my body. It's hard for me to get out. Right. But, but at the same time, you've gone out on the ledge for people in a way that I've never seen before, which kind of talks to your ability to teach. 
Like, you mind me telling uh, the audience about the story with Tony? Uh, with Tony? What you did for Tony and his family. I guess so. I don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep it short. <laughs> yeah, keep it very short. It basically, Todd was walking down the streets in New York. There was a homeless family with a new kid, and they were just basically on the street, right? And he stopped and started talking to them, and he found out what, what the issue was. And Todd invited the whole family. I believe it was the, the husband, the wife, one child, and uh, the mother-in-law. Yeah, the child, was, uh, she, the child was 16 weeks old. Right. And they all, you invite them all back to your apartment, and I believe they stayed there for eight months. And then you no, Not eight there. months. No, it was about four. But the, during that time, you helped Tony get on, on his feet, get a job, get, get enough money to get an apartment. That, that's a very unusual behavior in today's world. Like you need a big heart for that. And uh, going back to my, um, my question, that kind of heart, you should be helping people, I guess, is the, the, what's coming through me right now. But having said that, I'll leave you to think about it. What I wanted to move on. Oh, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. I, I want to try to motivate him also in my, my own way. <laughs> now, listen here, you fuck face. Uh, <laughs> you, you've, been, uh, you've been learning valuable information for longer than I've been alive, literally. So you have a moral obligation to give that information to as many people as possible. You're sitting on... Uh, a waterfall is going into a sink faucet inside your mind and inside your heart. Break that faucet open and let that waterfall pour out onto as many people as possible. We do not have enough time for these excuses. And um, I hope you take that to heart. So let's move on. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. The next topic I wanted to get into is what is your definition of enlightenment? Because I think that'll lead us down some interesting paths. You mentioned it at the beginning. Do you mind just reiterating what your definition is, Todd? It's not my definition. I'm use the definition that Rama gave us. The complete experience of life without any mental modifications. So no thought. They see no thought. No, no thought. Yeah. So, Justin, we should make a side note to talk about this in another podcast. Because in one of our podcasts, we, we talk about hermetic principles of life. Basically, natural laws that, that help you live life in this reality, right? And the first one is mentalism. Everything is mental. But the point here, Justin, is like once you move beyond that, do those laws of natural laws apply? Like that's another discussion I just throwing out there. I'll make a note of that and we'll talk about it later. So back to you, Todd. Yeah, I just looking at the uh, nervicopal samadhi. So it's the it, nervicopal is said to bring about feelings of infinite bliss and peace where thoughts cease to exist. Those who have written about this state have found it difficult to describe because it's a state beyond thinking mind. And that's correct. So if you're really seeking esoteric teachings, you need to find a teacher that can at least maintain some, even if it's for a few seconds, nervocopal samadhi. If they've reached that level, they're able to um, really open up the esoteric channels and can, can change your destiny with a flick of a finger. Right. I mean, and that makes sense to me. I think my definition is very similar, if not exactly like that. Justin, your definition is slightly different. Yeah, mine is um, knowing what's going on around you, within you, and knowing the objective difference between right and wrong and living that in your life. So living the difference between right and wrong in your life daily, not aggressing upon any, any other of your fellow human sentient beings and not voluntarily agreeing to be aggressed upon by them either. Yeah, it sounds like a wish list. The, the objective right and wrong, there is no right and wrong. Disagree. 
there, there is a, there is only action, right? The interpretation of the action, whether it's right or wrong, is by the observer. So, so, so in what situation would uh, would rape be a right? Oh, it's never right in my book. So then it's yeah. a wrong. So then there are wrongs. But the, uh, what I'm saying is that if you're going outside into nirvikalpa samadhi, rape doesn't exist, and it does exist. Would it ever be act, acted upon? Probably not. But it doesn't have anything to do. Rape in its in its conceptual self has nothing to do with nirvikalpa samadhi. You know what I mean? Right and wrong is like it's a conceptual thing of the mind. So you're saying it doesn't exist when you're in that mindset. I'm saying that rape and the concept of rape and the concept of doing something to somebody else, all, all that exists in the mind. That's the mind reality. The thought that you're doing something or something's being done to you, that's all part of mind. In the universal sense of total awareness, nothing's being done to anything and everything's being done. <laughs> there is no, I say, you're going beyond these conceptual thought patterns of yin and yang. So you're going beyond the yin and yang? Yeah, you're, you're beyond that in, that in that state. You're no longer even acting as your own volition. You're, you're most enlightened beings I know, uh, I should say I know, that have experienced, that have been in for it, they don't even have their own self doing, they're not motivated by themselves. There's no motivation from them. Their motivation is from the universe. Humorous is saying they're completely on the floor, hands out, bowing down to the universe. They don't do anything for themselves, nothing for themselves. Their whole lives are dedicated to teaching others and getting up and, and helping the world grow in consciousness. They don't do anything for themselves. So the fact that like rape, rape, raping somebody is such a primal, I say, um, selfish act that anybody with any consciousness would never even consider such a thing. It, it takes care of itself. The fear of somebody doing you wrong because they're in a higher state of consciousness, that, that all takes care of itself. Higher states um, take care of it a lot. So what, what do you do when you're in a situation? So I, I wasn't saying that, that they would ever rape anybody. I was saying, hmm. what if somebody's aggressing upon them? Oh, I don't know. That, that's up to them what happens. I don't know. Well, in Rama's case, he, he would kick their ass, right? I mean, if... <laughs> five degrees. He, he would. He would. I, I mean... I don't. That's, uh, that's within natural the rights. Uh, that's within rights because um, you have the non-aggression principle. Like yeah. So I think the bottom line here, I like to summarize because that way I can understand it for more than like ten minutes and it stays with me sometimes. Is that um, at a certain level of consciousness, in that in that level is when there is duality, there is right and and wrong, and then that state, like having clearly defining what rights and wrongs are, are necessary in order to keep a civil society. Like for example, rape is never right. Murder is never right unless someone's trying to kill you. Like you have the right to defend yourself, right? There are certain things that are right and, and wrong. And, and the wrongs are easier to, to define because there's a lot less wrongs than, than rights. But once you leave that environment or reality of duality, the game changes. Everything is completely different. There is no right and wrong. Not, nothing has been broken down into those two elements, right? There, there is just right. being. There just is. Right. And I, I've experienced that like once or twice in my life. And I understand what you mean. Your heart opens up. There's a knowing. And, and there's a communion and connection to everything and everyone. So the idea of hurting another anything else is like an idea of hurting. It's like hurting yourself. Yeah. It's like kicking yourself in the balls. Right. <laughs> right. 
And, uh, and no one wants to do that. <laughs> yeah, no one wants to do that. It's just that's not intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. And when you're beyond duality, there is, you're even beyond intelligence because it's, it's a knowing, right? There's, there's nothing to figure out. You, you know everything. So that distinction is, is interesting and it, and it makes a lot of sense to me, Tom. Yeah, yeah. I, what do you think of that, Justin? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it it, um, it reminds me of like of um, a couple of things. So first, it reminds me of Nietzsche because Nietzsche wrote the book called Beyond Good and Evil, and, and what we're talking about is beyond right and wrong, pretty much the same thing. the The second thing I think of it is like enlightenment being a goal that almost cannot be attained obtained in our society, and, and it's something to strive towards, like perfection or or towards absolute truth. But it's not something that very many people are ever going to get, and especially not while living in a uh, society or a culture that that does the things that occurs. So it's always something to work towards and, and to continue moving towards because it, it is a, a scale that you can that you can work up. But in order to actually a- attain it, a lot more societal changes have to occur in order for that to happen more more frequently for people. I mean, I, I just I totally agree. I mean, I think. Nine out of 10 people are still trying to figure out what right or wrong is. They're still trying to figure out how do I stop making so much pain in my life while dishing out tons of it. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> it's like, I agree with you. But there's that one out of 10 people that they pretty much know what right or wrong is. And they're ready to make the next step into a higher states of consciousness and maintain those higher states and work towards those. And I think those people actually pull the others into, into being. If they're teaching... If they're teaching, <laughs> if they accept teachers, and, and <laughs> coffee almost came out of my nose. <laughs> you know, and I, I see that in the United States, we're in a very, we're on a precipice. Like, I feel like our country could easily drop into a dictatorship because people are not choosing to own their actions. <laughs> they're, they're looking for somebody else to to tell them what right or wrong is and to go out and do these when really it's it's not your government it's not your president it's you that have to go out and do the right thing you have to not steal 10 bucks laying on the floor when it's not your money you know leave it on the fucking floor or give it to the lost and found there's little things like even the gym i go to nobody puts the weights back they just leave them <laughs> on the floor right? and it's it's that simple it's that simple of an action just be mindful and respectful of others and put stuff back. If yep. everybody was to just get at that base level, oh my God, think about the huge leap we'd make in enlightenment and consciousness. Just if that, if that basic level of not even have to worry about your own safety. Women, women worry about their safety all the time. As a man, we have the luxury of not having to worry about our safety all the time. I disagree with that. I think we should more, we put ourselves in bad situations because we're like, I'm a man, I'll be fine. And the next thing you know, you're like, oh, shit. This is smart. <laughs> yeah, agreed. But I mean, think about how you know, women go through it a lot. Yeah, right? they're thinking. They have the, the mental uh, yeah. thought process to be like, that. it might be dangerous to go into that dark alley. Yeah. I, I don't know what it would be like to live in a world where my physical stature actually was much smaller than the people that could control me. And those people that can control me are not that great of awareness. They're no. you know, drinking their knuckles and, you know, <laughs> picking their nose. So yeah. I do see that evolution in men. I mean, I do see men taking more, more roles, which I, makes me very happy. More, we've talked about this with the goddess and stuff, but 
I see men's roles changing slowly but surely, and, and I'm hoping that that continues. Even questioning, I see men questioning their roles. I mean, it's a very confusing time, I think, to be. I don't know how the younger generations are, but I know <laughs> my, my, my generation is completely freaking, they're so confused right now. You know, they grew up in a time with Clint Eastwood and uh, what, was, what was the guy? John Wayne. Fucking the bandit. You know, where smacking women on the ass was cool. And uh, it was, and now all of a sudden, none of that's cool. You can't do any of that stuff. You have to be, you can't be macho anymore. You have to be tender, loving, and caring, and supportive family. You know, like all these things. It's just a, it's a changing dynamic for us. And I, I think society as a whole is growing. It just gets scary for, to me. Yeah, I think um, whenever people talk about rights and stuff, and they always want more rights, they consistently forget that with every right that you have, the counterweight to, to a right is responsibility. That's right. So the more rights you have, the more responsibilities that you have. And people don't want responsibility. So they're willingly giving their rights up in order to not have as much responsibility. They're like, here, government, take That's our right. guns. Here, take us, right. take us, take that. They're not realizing what they're giving up, giving up freedom. That's right. Yeah, you have freedom until somebody makes a law, and and that's what we try to do. I mean, we live in an era where everybody's just constantly, constantly making up laws because people don't take do the right thing, and that's how dictatorships start. Yeah, Anthony and I are, are literally making a course that the crux of it is to explain what's a right and what's a wrong. It, it's just um, it, it's so simple. <laughs> when you like, because there's only six wrongs. It, it, like if, if you write them out, it's murder, rape, trespass, coercion, right. coercion and um theft and then um the last one that that everyone always forgets is lying lying is a is a wrong and and when it comes to lying most people are doing it to themselves so right. you're always doing it yourself every lie is to yourself because you're denying what reality is to yourself and it's the stupidest thing that you could do because because you're saying that no no it, it's this way and then reality is saying no it's this way and don't don't fuck with me i'm reality bitch <laughs> yeah i'm truth <laughs> yeah yeah, that, that's what we're calling our course. Uh, truth matters. Yeah. We're getting truth matters. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, how to find the truth for yourself in any situation, and, and we get into um, biology, like uh, research done by Dr. Bruce Lipton, when he talks about uh, perception is basically how you filter out the signals from the environment, right? And those signals are will go in, into your cell. So by just changing your perception, you're sending different signals into your cell, thereby changing the chemistry. So just by changing the way you think, your mind, you, you can affect your, your health. You know, I love it. Other things yeah. can affect your behavior, right? And this isn't woo science. This is like actual legitimate uh, fields of science. Oh, I, I know. Yeah. yeah. So the last question, or the main question I want to pull us all back to and kind of answer right. right now. Do you need an enlightened teacher to become enlightened to yourself? Now, we have de different definitions of what that was. I think, let's first see if we're all in agreement. Enlightenment, I think, means you go beyond duality. So I think Todd's description of enlightenment is like um, what we're talking about. Does that make sense to you, Justin? Because you were your definition was still within the confines of duality. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think a lot of people are going to understand Todd's, but I, I, I'm fine with it. I'm cool. I'm cool with Justin's. Everybody has their own way of putting it. Yeah. It's either right or wrong, right? It's a perception. But it's an important yeah. distinction. It's an important distinction. It's like your definition, Todd, is where you get rid of the mind. Once that happens, like you open yourself up to a whole other level of perception, right? Uh, not to drop, but if that's your goal, right? My goal was never... The goal here is what is the definition of enlightenment? I used to think I wanted enlightenment, right? right. 
I don't, I don't think that anymore. (laughs) I, yeah, I kind of agree with that a lot, actually. That's why I changed my definition of enlightenment to a lower, if if you want to say a lower level. I think we're saying the same thing. I, I, what I, what I come to find out was enlightenment for me was it's too big to handle. It's, it's bigger than my mind. It's bigger than everything. Right. I just want to learn how to maintain higher states of awareness and states of happiness much longer than I were before. If I can maintain these states of awareness and maintain a sense of well-being for a very long period of time, I'm doing, and also impart it to others around me, I think I'm doing a better job than I was before. And that's all I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to do better than I was before the day before. The goal, I used to have the goal of, I'm going to be enlightened. I'm going to be like Christ. I'm going to sit on a mountain. I'm going to glow gold. And I'm gonna, that's all too big for me now. It's an unwielding goal that I, for me personally, I just I couldn't. It wasn't rewarding enough to see. Like I have to be, <laughs> I'm a stickler. I have to have, I have to have metrics and measurement, and then I have to measure myself to know how I'm getting there. Right? Am I making progress? And with alignment, that was such a big goal. There's just no way of measuring that. You can't. How do you fucking measure yeah. alignment? Infinity, right? That's the that's the issue. Yeah, you can't measure. Yeah. But I can measure. Literally, I have a spreadsheet that I go in every day and I log in about nine different areas of my life and how did I do that day on that area. And, and I track it so I know, so I can try to figure out. It's almost like, um, you know, what planets are affecting me more. I'm trying to become much more conscious of the planetary influences, right? And all that is just improving my consciousness. So it's like, as long as I keep working towards that, for me, it works well. Can a teacher help me with that? Absolutely. Absolutely, a teacher can. In fact, the teacher's taught me all that. So without that knowledge, I would not even be able to do what I do today. So... <laughs> So is a teacher important? I think absolutely. Is finding the right teacher more important? Yes. I think finding the right teacher is much more important than finding just a teacher. I think finding one's teacher is like finding a bride or a husband. It's literally that intimate. I studied Ron for nine years. I felt like like he was one of the most intimate people I've ever known in my life, and yet I've only spoken to him in person three times. That sounds crazy. Mm-hmm. Yet I feel so meshed with him and my current teacher i've only had maybe a dozen one-on-ones with him i feel completely meshed with him so it doesn't necessarily you don't have to necessarily be physically close so to speak right being in the same room often is just enough and then there's other teachers where you might see quite a bit might have dinner with them might you know it all depends it all depends where you're at and what you want to do but i i highly recommend it you know if you don't want to go to the full if you just want a teacher to teach you a good meditation technique, start there. You know, there's a lot of teachers that have amazing meditation techniques and meditations for you. Some do different different aspects of life, money, relationships, health. Justin, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I, with my only experience with enlightenment was um, was with shrooms. What I experienced was it was awesome, and I and I loved it and everything. But you know, like we were saying with the I didn't want that 24 seven be a little intense. So knowing that and then coming off of it and going and going, okay, like at least like I have a mental clarity of, of what that is and, and why maybe striving for that is, is almost detrimental to actually even, even achieving it. That's kind of why I pulled everything back. And um, when it comes to this stuff and I've found that people can grow in consciousness from picking up girls uh, approaching girls. I, I've seen people grow in consciousness from learning a martial art. Like there's enlightened masters who 
trained in self-defense and like they've killed people in self-defense. And that doesn't seem like it, it should relate to enlightenment, but they, they are highly enlightened. And the amount of paths to where we're going is almost infinite. So it's like, if you feel like you want a teacher, then go get a teacher. If you don't want one, there's every book ever written on the internet. Go read how to learn how to ride a bike then realize that you need to ride a bike to learn how to ride a bike. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and, and it, it's fun to meet all of these interesting people who have gone on this, the same exact journey on a different path and talk to them and, and hear their experiences and go and, and realize that we're, we're seeing the same, the same sights along the way. And we're going, Oh yeah, yeah. I, 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 I learned that and, and stuff. And, and so it's like, we obviously are on the, on heading the same way and uh, doing it in different ways. And, taking longer or shorter and times. And, uh, and I think that that's awesome. Best thing I can say I've taken from my teachers is what they've imparted to me is something I can't even talk about because it's beyond the mind. It's like, I can't even, I can't even describe it. I can't even, it's just an emotional feeling that I carry inside of me. And that's the gift that I truly believe that in my next lifetime will help me find my path again immediately. Cause I'll carry that seed within me. And that's for me, the mm-hmm. biggest gift. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Is, is how do I get this this stuff imprinted onto the the next iteration? Hey, Amen. Because you know, <laughs> I, I was lucky. I had a brother that you know I, I incarnated with me to help me get through it, and he did. <laughs> but he may not be there next time, so I got to make sure you know. But I think we cover ourselves. Yeah, you know, like you said, we're all selfish beings. We make sure we're covered. <laughs> we know what we want. I mean, in the end, we know what our heart wants and we know what we want. And it's good to strive for it. It's good to push. It's good to strive for it. Yeah, it's good to reach out. And I think that's all, if any of my messages is like, if finding a teacher is for you, reach out with your heart, find that person, dive in head first, and, you know, just monitor the red flags. Don't go in debt. You should be constantly getting happier and happier, even though you might have times. And your teacher should be funny. That's right. I'd just like to add one thing, one last thing. My definition of um, enlightenment was, was getting beyond the mind. And I always thought that you would have, you need an enlightened teacher to teach you that. Because any, anytime you're learning anything, whether it's, you know, bricklaying or like building a computer or whatever it is, the best way to learn is to study with someone who's very proficient at it, right? It just makes sense. That idea has changed a little bit. I've gone on two workshops with the uh, this guy called Joe Dispenza, and he has meditations that uh, open up your pineal gland, right? Mm-hmm. And I could feel it happening. And basically he says, once you open up your pineal gland, you open yourself up to higher vib- vibrations. And then the pineal gland has DMT in it. It takes these vibrations and turns them into visions, right? So he's come up with a very scientifically proven, proven method to open your pineal gland, which gets you into another would get would get you beyond the mind, and, and the way he's described it when it happens to him is he's he's beyond the mind, right? So th- there's an example of someone who is like, he's connected, like he you know he's connected to his guides, like he he's connected beyond the five senses, but he's taken a very scientific route and he's come up with a mechanism that a lot of people like last time last event was about like a thousand people, and it seemed like a good like ten percent of them had been to the stage where they open up the pineal gland and, and they're open to other levels of consciousness now, right? So my opinion that you needed an enlightened master to do that has definitely shifted. 
the fact that a non-enlightened person could do this for so many people was mind-blowing to me. So I, yeah. I think the bottom line is that, uh, and I've, I've probably said that many times on this podcast, the bottom line, in this time, there's many different ways to evolve yourself, right? Like there's a cornucopia of different methods. Just get into your heart, feel what's right for you, and uh, throw in a little bit of passion and determination, and I'm sure you're going to have a happy and wondrous experience. Amen. Todd, we've enjoyed your presence on the Spiritual Hustle so much for the second time. Yeah. I'd like to say thank you for coming back. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I always have fun with you guys. Yeah. And I've had some like insights that uh, are going to do me well. Thank you very much. Now, taking consideration what you guys have been telling me. So I appreciate the feedback. Yeah. We will be following up on that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Keep All right. me honest. I love it. <laughs>